Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus put before the crowds another parable. The dominion of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that all the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus told them another parable. The dominion of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The dominion of heaven is like the treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the dominion of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the dominion of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets and threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace to you and peace from the one whose love is beyond measure. Amen. I also bring... Greetings on behalf of our good bishop, Bishop Yehel Curry, whose birthday it is today. Happy birthday, Bishop. And from the 88,000 children of God in the 185 congregations in Cook, Lake, Kane, and DuPage counties, who consider you siblings in Christ, partners and co-workers in sharing God's love in a world so desperately in need of hearing your voice. So tell me, what are your intentions? I have to wonder if Laban had already heard about the family drama with Jacob and was at least a bit skeptical about his presence among them. What are your intentions? And in case you haven't caught the previous episodes in the Jacob story, here's a quick rundown. Grandson of Abraham and Sarah, son of Isaac and Rebekah, twin of Esau. His name itself means supplanter or heel catcher because he comes out of the womb already grabbing the heel of his older brother. And continuing to live up to his name, Jacob cheats his brother Esau out of his inheritance and blessing by deceiving his elderly blind father with the help of his mother. Jacob flees the scene for fear of his life. His he journeys to the land of his uncle Laban. And last Sunday, we heard about a powerful dream at Bethel where Jacob experiences God's presence with him. He makes his way to Haran, where he meets a drop-dead gorgeous woman, a shepherd at the well, his first cousin, Rachel. 
Jacob kisses Rachel and weeps aloud. He makes it back to the homestead and stays with his uncle family, bringing us up to today. After Jacob had been working for about a month or so, Laban asks him, what should your wage be? How much shall I pay you? I certainly don't intend for you to work for free just because you're my nephew. What are your intentions? I just wonder if Laban isn't curious or more concerned about the way in which Jacob has worked his ways in the past. What are your intentions? Jacob knows exactly what he wants. Rachel. Without skipping a beat, he enthusiastically responds, Rachel, that is Laban's youngest daughter whose beauty is apparent. Jacob is in love. So the text tells us. And in fact, it's one of the very few explicit references to romantic love in the Hebrew Bible. He's so in love that he commits to seven years of service in order to marry her. He's so in love that those seven years of hard service seem to pass overnight. Let it be known, the trickster gets tricked. Perhaps Laban had been planning this for years, seven years. Or perhaps it came to him in the final moments. What was his intention? Laban switches the sisters before the marriage bed, and Jacob consummates the marriage with Leah, the beloved's sister. Was Laban really following customs? Did he want to teach Jacob a lesson in reversal of deception? Or did he just want 14 years of service instead? What are your intentions? When I returned to the text, trying to find the good news for today in a fairly problematic text, I thought that I would return to a common Lutheran homiletical tactic to, to look at what God was up to, what God is doing, only to realize that God is not referenced or named once in this text. And remember, Jacob has just had this really powerful dream where he's reminded of God's presence anew. Know that I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go. And yet, Jacob still doesn't really demonstrate that faith outwardly. There, of course, is no doubt that God is working through the life of Jacob. After all, no matter how many tricks he tries to pull, he eventually gets to live into the promises of Abraham. Land and descendants as numerous as the stars, a great nation, Jacob is on a spiritual journey, and there are always moments on our journeys where we get wrapped up in ourselves. We think that we are doing it all on our own, and we forget about the God who is working in and through it all. We forget to acknowledge and name God, but more, we forget about God's intentions. What are God's intentions for your life. About two months ago, Pastor Mueller asked me and my husband about our intentions, along with several of you as well. It was kind of a role reversal. I wasn't used to being on the other side of the questions. But Pastor Mueller asked, sisters and brothers, siblings in Christ, do you intend to continue in the covenant of your baptism among God's people in this place? Do you intend to live among God's faithful people, to hear the word of God and share in the Lord's Supper, 
to proclaim the good news of God in Christ through word and deed, to serve all people following the example of Jesus, and to strive for justice and peace in all the earth. What a list. I, I remember when I was in eighth grade as a confirmation student, I couldn't believe they were asking me to commit to this, and quite frankly, now in my 30s, I still can't believe it. Okay, the first few are fairly easy. Basically, just get to church and be part of a faith community. Although, it's been a little challenging for various reasons these days. But those other two, serve all people, strive for justice and peace in all the earth. Couldn't we just have, like, committing to our little peace of the earth? Our, our liturgy, though, teaches us to respond. I do and I ask God to help and guide me. Such helpful instruction. Really, I wanted to say something like, only by the grace of God who works through me, but that's almost a little bit of a cop-out too. Like our opening hymn proclaimed, save us from weak resignation. I do have to make it my intention to be deliberate, purposeful and persistent while trusting and leaning on God all the way. To serve all people, I do, and I ask God to help and guide me. To strive for justice and peace in all the world, I do, and I ask God to help and guide me. Over and over and over again, I've said these words as I've been journeying to better understand the experience of people of color in this country to hold up a mirror to my own words and actions, to interrupt those biases that naturally come to the surface, to listen to the stories and experiences of those who are black, indigenous, and people of color, to listen to experiences without trying to justify or find counterexamples or critique, to feel and lean into those moments that my defenses start to rise, to listen, and allow it to transform me, and then to use the voice that I've been given for good. And that whole living among God's faithful people helps precisely with that. Faith communities, at their best, can bring us into relationships with people we would likely never cross paths otherwise, and to help each other help hold each other accountable to the values that we claim. These values of the reign of God, what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven, and Luke, the kingdom of God. When I teach about the parables that describe this dominion of heaven, as we hear about in the gospel reading for today, I typically ask folks to hear that as when God is in charge, or when God rules. Imagine what it but it's like when God rules and humans don't get in the way. I don't know if our wildest imaginations can even handle that. What does the world look like when God's intent rules the day? Here, I would like, love to hear you all shout out some answers. So Jesus gives us a few glimpses. Where people of different vocations and socioeconomic statuses live together and all have enough. The sower of seeds, the woman baking bread, the fortune seeker, the merchant, the commercial fisher. It's joy-filled. 
Each child is valued and cared for like a treasure. And Paul proclaims it like no other, where all people know that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate them from the love of God. Not fear or doubt, nor anxiety or grief, not our ego, nor people's opinion of you, nor not loss of job or identity, not who you love or where you come from, not a pandemic, nor political divisions, not dangerous theology, nor white fragility. No, absolutely nothing. And, and this is the security blanket, that comfort blanket that I hold on to for the days I struggle. God's promises are fulfilled despite human deception and pain. I'm grateful for a God who loves beyond measure, who will work behind the scenes, even when I think I'm in control, not always bringing to fruition the plan that I think should happen in the timeline in which I think it should happen, but nonetheless fulfilling the promises she made, fulfilling the intentions that she has, and nurturing me to fulfill my intentions. So what, dear church, are your intentions for this day?